0: This week, we're going to let you pick your poison. That's right. It's episode 248 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James with No, 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 no. Don't take that literally or anything like that. I'm just saying... We're talking about Deadly Class once again this week on the show. As a matter of fact, someone who is a little bit of an expert on poison. That's right, Petra herself, Taylor Hickson, is going to be joining us to talk about the show. I'm sure that you watched it this past Wednesday or watched it early online. So we'll get her thoughts on the show and playing Petra. But no, no, that is not all. going to be talking about The Passage. Once again, as well with executive producer and writer Liz Heldens, as a matter of fact, instead of our spoiler-filled review of the first episode, why not just ask the executive producer herself a bunch of questions about it? Works out just as well, right? So it's a jam-packed show. Let's get it started. What we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja
1: Turtles, and you're listening to me on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: Time to fire up the laptop, or of course the tablet. Dragging out the long box is also an option. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and we're gonna send sh- just go straight to hell right now. As a matter of fact, because Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles: Shredder in Hell, number one, came out this past week from Mateus Santoloco. I'm sorry right off the bat for screwing up your name. Thankfully, he is the writer, artist, and colorist on the book. Marcelo Costa also helps out on the colors, and Sean Lee. On the letters now, of course, I'm sure you know the events of what happened with Iroku Saki and you know dying at the hands of Hamato Yoshi and previous Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles issues. Now, basically, where this starts off is you know Saki's immortal love Kitsune wants to kind of use his soul to resurrect her father, who is the all-powerful Dragon God. Now, the book does relive the events of what led up to Shredder's death before we find him in a place that was mentioned during that final confrontation. I'm not going to go into all the details because either you've seen it already or you haven't seen it, and I'm not going to spoil that for you. Obviously, you know Shredder died. I don't think that that's any huge secret. It was, what, like a year and a half ago maybe? Maybe even longer than that, actually. So that that's really no surprise. But what's kind of surprising is what's now happening after the fact. Now, this is really the start of his journey in the afterlife. Now we do get some answers about who Oroku Saki truly is, but it also appears that there's more of a choice there than we might have realized. And I know that that's vague, but I mean it's 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 very interesting how this whole thing plays out. Now he does have some guidance, actually he has some dual guidance. I will give you that much again without spoiling anything, but you can imagine. How that works out, because I mean, this would be pretty short if you figured it out in the first issue, right? Now, I will say the final few pages really kick the action up a little bit. There's not a ton of it before that. I mean, there's there's some towards the beginning, but it's not. It doesn't last very long, but you, it definitely is action packed towards the end. I mean, and here's the thing: it's hard to not assume because he is in the afterlife. You, I can't necessarily say. I mean, it's Shredder in hell, but. It just didn't feel like hell. I'll get to that in a second, though. But, I mean, it's easy to assume that everything and everyone he encounters in there is a manifestation, right, in a story like this. Now, if you want to talk about the art, the art's actually pretty amazing. I mean, the array of colors that are used in depicting the different aspects of the afterlife are pretty important and pretty spot-on throughout. But the question I had, really, was whether it really does feel like hell that he's experiencing. I mean, you can decide on your own if that's a good thing or a bad thing, if you've already read this issue or if you're planning on it. It just You don't really get that sense that that's what it is. And I'm not sure. Maybe we'll find out that it's not. Maybe that's the whole point. Or maybe there's more to it than we realize. So I'm certainly not ready to give up on the story. I mean, if you're reading this book, you're probably already highly invested in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles universe of characters anyway. And this story certainly 100% banks on that. So, I mean, if you're a fan, yeah, I think that you'll enjoy this. Was it as cool and, you know, knock my socks off as I expected? Not really, but that's not a terrible thing either. And I think that this was very much the first issue of something that could really have a lot of meaning in the larger scheme of things. So I'm going to go ahead and give this a pickup for now. Not ready to add this to the pull box just yet. But, I mean, I'll give it a couple more issues and see if it kicks up a little bit. I'm just worried that it might drag on, so we'll see how that goes. Going to move ahead a little bit in one of these series. Let's go to Goddess Mode from Vertigo, and we'll go to the second issue which came out this past week. Zoe Quinn doing the writing here, Robbie Rodriguez on the art, Rico Renzi on the colors, and Simon Bolin on the letters. Now, the world is one big tech-filled mess, basically, in this, if you read Goddess Goddess Mode number one, there's a massive AI that sort of runs everything called Psych from a massive company called Hermeticorp. Now, the story follows Cassandra, who is a low-level employee. She's kind of a screw-up in her own mind anyway, for sure, and she's seen as kind of a loser by a whole bunch of different people. In this book, she's kind of found her way to the Azoth, which is sort of like The Matrix, but not. it's a little bit hard to explain without you actually reading the book, especially if you saw the first issue. There's a lot that's alluded to about the Azoth, but not really anything definitive, and certainly seems like nobody really knows what the hell it is anyway, based on her reaction to ending up in it in the first issue. And she's immediately under attack by a demon, when she does. Now, she also meets three other women in the first issue who have asked her to join her them in saving the world. The majority of the second issue is Cassandra kind of getting what she wants, and that's an explanation for who she's with and what's going on. Does she know everything that's going on? No, because it seems like nobody knows everything that's going on, but by the end of the issue, she sort of has a handle On everything that's happening, whether she believes it or not is another thing. But that's you know she certainly seems to have a handle on what's going on. At the same time, there's really no answers for part of what's going on. It would be pretty boring if we got all the answers right away, right? Even as a reader, even if your main main protagonist doesn't have all the answers as a reader, you certainly don't want them this early now. All the different personalities in this book certainly make things very, very entertaining. The Oracles, as they call themselves, there's definitely a lot of different personalities. It's a very cool girl group they have going on. I also love that you kind of pair that with a very punk rock feeling art and the colors that are really making everything pop all over the place, especially in the transition to the Azoth. There's certainly a differentiation between... The real world and the Azoth, there's no question about that. So it's really cool when you get that transition and everybody looks different. But I'll get to that in just a second here. Now, things still seem a bit too much on the random stage for me in this story. I mean, there's so many things that feel more like random acts than they do a continuing story. I know that there's a continuing story kind of bubbling there somewhere. And this issue stabilized things just a bit in the second issue, but not by a whole lot for me. Now, I really get some Ready Player One vibes when I read this, and that's kind of crossed with the Matrix, but I'm not 100% invested in these characters just yet. I mean, I don't really feel in a, a giant affinity for any of these characters, and I would think after the second issue, there's, there would be at least one character where I'm either really rooting for or really attached to, and it's not that I don't like Cassandra. I certainly think that there, she does have some likable qualities, and there's some of the oracles that you know I get a chuckle at as well. And it's not that I don't want to know more about them; it just I feel like I should be more invested than I am in the second issue. So I usually give everything a three-issue rule. The third issue would be the the next one. So I'll go ahead and read Goddess Mode number three and see if I want to continue on here. So I'm going to give this a very shaky pickup right now. I think that this book could be something special, and that's why I'm not stopping now because I think that. There's a lot of potential here, and I want to see if it gets realized at least a little bit more in the next issue. It could just be a slow burn, and I just have to deal with that fact and be a little bit more patient. We'll find out. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Another double dose of geek Geektainment, because it's mid-season premiere time, so let's talk about the first five episodes of Carmen Sandiego from Netflix. Kind of spoiler-ish, not really. We'll talk about it next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast.
2: Hi, this is Chin Han from Ghost in the Shell, and you're listening to Down and nerdy
0: Podcast. It's not exactly opera, but the classic character has finally returned. That's right, Carmen Sandiego has come to Netflix. Of course, Gina Rodriguez voicing the title character. You've got Finn Wolfhound as player, and I thought I recognized a voice in there, by the way. Kari Walgren, who was on the show not too long ago as the voice of Tigris. So I thought I'd just point that out. Because I thought she did a great job. But let's talk about this. And I mean it's going to be. A, there's going to be a little bit of spoiler-ish stuff in here. Not completely full of spoilers though. Because I don't think that's fair. Since the show literally just came out. I don't want to spoil anything for you. You got to see the first five episodes. Just a little bit early. And I can tell you. That the first two episodes are really an origin story. And explain quite a few things actually. Like why she's a hero. and know that that was. A point of contention for some fans because she is a thief. And she's still a thief in this show. I want to make that perfectly clear. Now you find out why she becomes a, I guess you'd call her a hero. Kind of how she ends up with the red red coat and hat. That whole origin is told. We've got her history with Vile, which is also explained. And how she ends up making the decisions that she does. But, I mean, it also leaves plenty of questions as well. Like where she comes from and who are some of the people that she meets along the way. Now, after the origin there, it gets very episodic. And then there's still a service to a larger story, though, with beating Vile to the punch. Also, she's trying to escape from Interpol as well. We'll talk about the Interpol agent here in just a couple of minutes. We also sort of get a villain of the week type of feel because you have a Vile agent or two that she kind of crosses paths with each mission as she tries to keep them from gaining certain items. You know, she kind of steals them before they get a chance to. That's the basis of these future episodes because she's trying to stop them, obviously. Now, there are different lessons in history and geography that are actually learned starting in Episode 3 and beyond. It's not quite the same as the game and it's not quite the same as maybe the animated series that we saw, but I mean, the lessons are still there, and they are quite deliberate. It's not like it's hidden or anything. It's like, here, we're about to teach you something. Here's some visual aids as well to guide you along. So it's, it's definitely obvious when there's teaching moments there. I mean, there were some teaching moments in the origin episodes as well that weren't so obvious, but once you get past that, they they really do make a conscious effort. Now, I mean, it's it's not mind-blowing stuff, but I mean, if, if you're talking about younger younger fans that want to learn a little something and maybe pique your interest about learning more about certain countries, then I think that this is a good way to go. You have to to try and remind yourself as you're watching this that this is not necessarily geared towards adults. I'm not saying adults won't enjoy it. I'll let you know whether or not I enjoyed it here in just a second. I'm just saying remember when you're watching this, this that this is geared very much towards kids and very much towards a younger audience. Now, it seems to be where the traditional aspects of the series come to an end though. I mean at the same time, Carmen San Diego is a very likable character in this show and in this new iteration and the origin actually does a good job of making you want to root for her. When you find out, you know, how she was dumped there and how basically she was an orphan, but she was taken in, and then everything that she finds out and everything that she works for when she was younger going up and how that all goes for her. When she's at Violin, what happens to her while she's there and then ultimately ends up leaving. I mean, it makes you want to root for it. Makes you, and and they build that throughout the entire show of her kind of being the underdog and the odds being against her. So, I mean, she's an easy character to root for. As a matter of fact, her teaming up with player is actually very enjoyable as well. And how she ends up in contact with player, I actually think was was kind of funny. So I, I really enjoyed how they brought him in. Now, here's one thing that I didn't like. And I was not a big fan of her other companions in the series that we that we meet starting in episode three. And that's Ivy and Zach. They're a pair from pair from Boston, brother and sister, who kind of meet Carmen along the way. Apparently, they were staking out the same place. I mean, it was really, if I'm being honest, it was me kind of a weak basis for a partnership with Carmen. So I'm not sure if there's going to be more past episode five as to why they are kind of working together. But, I mean, and it wasn't the Boston accent, I swear, because I'm originally from New England. I love the Boston accent. I've got plenty of family that still have it. I love the people of Boston. But there was just something. They don't really serve much of a purpose to the story. They're, they're moderately helpful, if that, in certain aspects. And, you know, Zach, not very most of the time, if anything. Ivy is the way more helpful of the two. It just seems like if they weren't there, it wouldn't matter. There is something, I believe, in Episode 5 where Zack plays a, a bigger role. But again, it, you, there, were, there would have been ways around that. They actually had a way around that and it ended up getting a little bit screwed up in Episode 5. And I'm just, certainly not going to ruin that for you. But uh, it just seems like if they weren't there, it wouldn't matter. And you're not really gaining anything by having them there, I don't think. You're not servicing anything. So I... That is one thing I definitely didn't enjoy. It's not a deal breaker for me, but that's one thing I don't enjoy about the show so far. The other part of the opposition actually is Inspector Devino, who is an agent of Interpol and a little bit of something else as the show goes on as well as we find out somebody else who's kind of throwing their hat into the ring here. Now, he also serves as more of the villain of comic relief where it's like he it was almost like he was Wiley e. Coyote Dude, Carmen Sandiego's Roadrunner in this. And it was laughable and lovable at the same time. He also, Deveneau will frustrate the hell out of you for a lot of different reasons. But I loved that about him. So he was annoying to the point of it being funny, not annoying to the point of being annoying. And that is a key to a villain, if you want to call him that, like Inspector Deveneau. So I, where I thought Ivy and Zach were not presented well, I thought Inspector Devineau was presented extremely well, and I'm, I, will, I will definitely take more Inspector Devineau as the series go on. Now, Carmen's mission, very pure. What she does post-mission, very honorable. Her gadgets are neat. There's definitely plenty of action to keep you entertained. The animation, I actually really, really loved. It wasn't overly complicated, but it was very crisp, very clean, very colorful, at times when it needed to be, very, very dark at times when it also needed to be. It was just very simple shading. It wasn't overly complicated. The action sequences were really, really done well. I didn't feel like I missed out on anything. It was just very, very pleasant to look at. I mean, the show mostly works. I will say that. There are certainly things that I didn't like, and it's not perfect by any stretch, but it's very enjoyable. And if you're not overthinking it and you're realizing that this is for a younger audience and you want to watch this with your kids, you won't be annoyed by it as an adult. There's certainly stuff there that will make you chuckle. And I think the kids will get a kick out of this as well. And maybe if nothing else, they'll subliminally learn a couple of things about countries they might not have otherwise heard of in school or anywhere else. So I say Definitely give Carmen Sandiego a shot. I enjoyed it. The character herself, Gina Rodriguez, does a fantastic job as Carmen. She's sassy. She's funny. She's smart. I mean, some certainly a character that you could look up to if you were younger, I think. I mean, she checks all the boxes of a character that you would want your kid to look up to. I mean, other than the fact that she's a thief, but she's a good thief. You want to go ahead and watch the show and find out exactly why. So I would say definitely watch Carmen Sandiego on Netflix. I go, of course, only got to episode five that I got to see early, I'm going to find my way through the rest of the series. Maybe I'll give you an update on our website. Keep checking back to nerdypodcast.com for updates on the rest of the episodes of Carmen Sandiego. That's going to do it for my spoiler-ish review of Carmen San Diego from Netflix. Up next, going to dive into The Passage once again and instead of giving you a spoiler-filled review, we'll talk to executive producer Liz Heldens up next on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey, this
1: is Mark Paul Gossler from The Passage on Fox and you're listening the down and nerdy
0: podcast. Well, you know we love something if we're talking about it again so soon, and we really love the first episode of The Passage on Fox. I'm sure you're already watching it every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but we decided to go ahead and chat with executive producer and writer for the series, Liz Heldens. Liz, how are you doing?
1: Hi, I'm great, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm doing good. Now, before we really dive in after this first episode, I had to ask you this since I've got you now. You know, fans, of course, by now know that this show is adapted from the novels of Justin Cronin. Now, you've done a lot of TV, so what do you feel like is the key to a successful adaptation? That's a good question. One thing I think is I love the books. I think if you really
1: love your source material and you treat it with affection and care, that is
0: a big step forward.
1: But these particular books are, you know... I don't know if you've read them. Have you read them?
0: I have not had the pleasure of reading them yet. Now that I've seen the show, I'm gonna though. I think that's part of the fun of it.
1: Yeah, they're 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 huge. They're enormous. I mean, I came to this uh, to these books as a fan. I was on like a post apocalyptic reading bender in 2013, and I was just reading like I reread The Stand and World War Z, and just I was just wow. going through everything. And then my Kindle suggested I might enjoy a book called The Passage by Justin Cronin.
0: Look how um, that worked it, out.
1: Yeah, I know, I know. And it was great. It was great. It's huge. And it, I mean, it takes place in different, I mean, it jumps around in time. And it's centered around this little girl who never really ages. And it's like, I mean, it's crazy. And like one world dies and another world is born. And it's like, it's just bananas. And I do remember thinking when I read it, like some poor sucker is going to have the hardest time trying to make this into a TV show. That guy's going to go crazy. And then it was me. Yeah, I mean, this adaptation, I mean, you know, on the one hand, it was easy because I really hooked into the relationship between Brad and Amy, which is kind of the beating heart of the first book. And on the other hand, it was just it was just kind of an embarrassment of riches and just kind of making hard decisions of what was going to be in the pilot episode and how we were going to focus the series.
0: You've keyed in on so much of the stuff that I want to talk about. So let's just go ahead and dive right into that right now. Let's talk about that relationship between Brad and Amy because I think it's probably one of the best things about the show at least from the first episode anyway. So talk about that a little bit. And did you did you kind of realize when you first saw them on screen together you had something special with Mark Paul and Sienna?
1: <laughs> Sienna Sydney. I'm um, terrible with is, names.
0: I'm notorious. It's
1: okay. I had to do it. I mean, it took a little I mean, it takes a little time, but Sanaya Sidney rolls off the tongue. There
0: we go. Better for um, you than me.
1: She's like the sun, man. She is just amazing. Um, I, I thought Mark Paul was perfect for it, kind of based on his, um, based on watching pitch, which I think the characters have a little bit of DNA in common. And then when Sanaya walked in, we were just kind of done. Like the minute she was one of the first girls to audition and we were kind of, we kind of knew we were done. And then the two of them together were just great. I mean, she is so she is so present and there's never anything false or cute about her. Like she's just really she's just really smart, really smart actress. And he I I just I love him in this part. He's so um, you know, Mark Paul, he's got four kids and I think it really shows in the way that he approaches his relationship with Sanaya on screen. Like he's never overly sentimental with her. He just treats her. I mean, he just, it just, there's something really, really, really super authentic about the two of them together. And I think very relatable in the middle of this huge kind of genre show.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about the V word for a second, because the term vampire has been brought up in the promos for the show, even in the first episode of the show, and it'll be brought up again for fans that, you know, haven't seen the second episodes yet. So what do you think separates the virals from your typical vampires?
1: Well, Justin Cronin set out to sort of make real world vampires. Like, what if it really happened? What if there was a virus that actually did work in your blood to turn you into a vampire? And so he, he never, I think... I think he drops the V word a little bit in the first book, like maybe once or twice and it's late in the book. But um, the idea was to kind of do these lab generated vampires who have all the qualities of the vampires that you read about, but it's just not, it's not, it's not quite the way it's been traditionally pictured. So it's, it's like super fun. Like his vampires could get into people's dreams and their psychic. And that's been really, really fun to play with as a writer. And it's really fun to see on screen. Like, that dream stuff is just is just a super fun aspect of the show.
0: Now, Liz, so many shows actually have characters that are basically just used as plot devices. But I really didn't get that sense in the first episode of The Passage, which I thought was really refreshing. So, do you feel like you have a really, real vast array of characters that actually play key roles in the story early on?
1: Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, I really, I, re- I mean, we really tried when we went into the writer's room to find the show. We really tried to... Kind of spend a couple weeks just talking about all the characters and how they got there and what their point of view is about what's going on at Project Noah, and so we really tried to kind of make everybody as grounded as we possibly could in the middle of this like crazy bizarre story.
0: You know, actually one of the, one of the characters who made me say that was was Carter because you feel like okay he's just being brought in to introduce us to Project Noah and be like the quote unquote first victim thing, but it's really more to it than that, and I thought that was really cool
1: yeah well, you know that's from the book Carter's a really key character in the book, and he's he's great and McKinley Belcher, who plays carter is just brings this kind of you know real dignity and intelligence to the part like you just feel like oh, th- this guy I don't know you look at that guy even in that first scene when they're trying to you know when woolgas is trying to talk him into uh trying to talk him into taking the project Noah deal like you just feel like oh, this guy's got a story, and I'm mm-hmm. interested in it and so So I'm super, I think the cast is just great. I think they're all like really outstanding. And that's been really, that's been really nice for us because you can follow anybody, you know, you can follow anybody into their story.
0: No doubt about it. We're talking to Liz Heldens, writer and executive producer of The Passage. Make sure you're catching it every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern on Fox. Now, Liz, one of the biggest questions after the first episode is what happened between Brad and his wife. We talked to Mark Paul about this last week, too, as a matter of fact, so we know that we have to wait for that reveal a little bit later on in the season, but do you feel like it's actually going to change the perception of Brad for viewers when we do?
1: I think Mark Paul in this part is, like, so... (laughs) likable, <laughs> that I do, I think it's going to make people, I think it's going to make people have more sympathy for him. And I think it's going to make people, you know, j- I, mean it, I mean, it's going to make people understand, I think, how he got to Project Noah, how he got, I mean, caught up in this sketchy medical experiment, and why his relationship with Amy is so important to him, and why that is a path to redemption for him. So I think it is going to make him more
0: complicated. Definitely looking forward to that. Now, Liz, of all the virals, I think that Babcock scares the hell out of me the most, more than any of them so far. So how amazing has Brianne Howey been, and are there any others that really creep you guys out on the set?
1: First of all, Brianne Howey rules. She She is so great in this part. She's so sympathetic and scary and vicious and she can sell a joke like she's just she's just great i love her i think when we see her backstory in episode three you're going to really have a lot of sympathy for her so yes i agree with you and um i think tim fanning is just really scary in this part and he's another one who's like scary one second a little bit funny the next like he's tragic like it's great
0: and the funny thing is is because i feel like there's really like a moral compass behind the people working behind and with Project Noah. And there seems to be a real push and pull there at times. I mean, one thing, you think they're evil incarnate. Then the next thing, you're like, oh, well, they really feel like they're doing something good. So would you say that is something that we'll kind of see kind of continue throughout the season more?
1: Yeah, I mean, the way I look at the season is it's... um You know, this season examines the good intentions and the bad decisions that lead up to the um, end of the world as we know it. And so it's really all about that. Like they are really, you know, they're really going to be confronted with their decisions and what they've done and the fact that they're experimenting on human beings you know, which they rationalize up until this point because they're death row inmates. But, I mean, all of that stuff is going to, you know, be made into story.
0: One of the things that Mark Paul brought up when I talked to him last week, and I wanted to touch on again because I think it's really important, was the fact that you guys use a lot of practical effects on the show. Is that something that was important to you all when you were going to do this adaptation?
1: That is one change from the books. Like the I mean, if you read the books, the monsters, the virals that Justin Cronin describes, are terrifying. They are like, and they don't look human. They look like they're like larger. They have like an ectoskeleton and they glow and they look, and they're terrifying to read about on a TV show. As we sort of started talking about how they were going to look it, it, it became really important to us that you could still see the human being there. So they look quite a bit different than they're described in the book, but I think that is better for television and for storytelling. If you are going to try to have sympathy for the viral characters, which we do. So yeah, most of the makeup is practical. I mean, occasionally we use some we use some to show like a transformation. Like Brianne Howey's character looks pretty normal sitting in her cage, and then when she drinks or she gets hungry or she's threatened in some way, she sort of transforms into her viral look. And sometimes we'll use vis for that.
0: See, I think you can make the argument that them looking more human is more creepy because it gives you a sense of a like you said like a real world this could actually happen thing so that's one of the things that kind of creeps me out more so
1: yeah i think so too i think so too i think it works on you know i mean i think it works on a tv show for sure
0: now liz i'm sure that there are many fans especially those that are fans of the books that kind of feel like they have a good handle on what's going to happen this season after the first episode they're like all right i kind of got this i see where this is going but without spoiling anything would you say that there are a few surprises in store as well for fans of the books and that uh, haven't read the books yet?
1: Oh, for sure, for sure. There's some crazy stuff that happens. I mean, we stuck with the uh, you know, we stuck with the big you know, the big tent poles of what Justin Cronin did in the book, but we had to sort of build out that story and drill down into character and make story out of people's past lives and you know, so characters that were in you know, characters that are featured in books two and three show up in season one of the passage and there's some crazy twists and turns that are going to happen
0: guys i've seen the second episode already you are not going to want to miss this episode or any episode after that of the passage make sure you're watching at 9 p.m eastern time on fox then watch it again on the fox now app and maybe again on fox.com as well it's writer and executive producer of the passage Liz Heldens, thank you so much for joining me this week. Oh, thank you. It was fun. Again, thanks to Liz Heldens for joining me to talk about the passage this week. But up next, so many trailers, some Ghostbusters news that we didn't expect, and a lot more coming up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is David Fielding, Sword
2: on from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast.
0: The hype train is certainly on the tracks this week because it's time for nerd news, or I should really just call it... Trailer news because there was a ton of them, so let's not waste any time. Talk about Spider-Man: Far From Home trailer, which yeah, maybe shouldn't have come out before Avengers: End Game came out. You probably could have waited, right? I mean, I know I wanted to see the trailer just as bad as you did, but uh, it just feels like a cart before the horse type of thing at this situation. Uh, but I'll try not to nitpick. Basically, Peter Parker is off to Europe, and hey, he just wants to have a great time with his friends, and after what he's been through, you know, with the whole snap thing, you could almost not really blame him, right? Depending on what timeline this takes place in, because we're really not even sure about that, but I digress. Now, he doesn't want to take his Spidey suit with him, but, you know, Aunt May packs it for him because that's what good parents do sort of thing. Now, he's definitely starting to show interest in MJ in the trailer, and then, you know, he seems like he is having a good time with his friends. Then Nick Fury shows up. And it's hashtag no days off. He reminds him that, hey, you're a hero. And that's when we see the Elementals start to rip through London. And I mean, we finally get to see Jake Gyllenhaal as Mysterio, which was great. Love the comics accurate costume. I mean, you can't not have the suit, right? I mean, I know you want to do things a little bit different in in the MCU, but you got to have the suit for Mysterio. Otherwise, it wouldn't make sense. Using the elementals, Elementals, though, is really, really cool. That's something that... I really like that they did, and that's something that, you know, you might have to Google, and that's okay. Can't really blame me there, but again, it's all going to boil down to Spidey and Mysterio at the end, I'm sure. There's a lot of fun moments in this trailer, though, and I like that they're just keeping it lighthearted with these Spider-Man movies, even though there is some serious stuff mixed in there as well, like you've got the stuff between... Happy and Aunt May, which was really hilarious in Peter's reaction to that. Like, yeah, what just happened? What's going on between you two? And MJ messing with Peter because, I mean, she is... It's such a different MJ than we're used to seeing, right? And I think that that's one of the things I love about Zendaya's performances, MJ the most, even from the last movie, is that she brings just such a breath of fresh air to the role and it's so different and she's combative in a way that's hilarious and she's doing it on purpose to mess with him. and She keeps him on his toes. So I think I, I really like their dynamic and that certainly hasn't changed in this trailer. It also seems a little like this is going to be a wake up call for Peter who wanted to be a hero so bad. And then all of a sudden he gets this flash of, oh, you know, I just want to have a normal week. And it doesn't doesn't really work that way when you're a hero. So I think that that is one lesson That might be learned in this movie, but either way, I mean, how could you not be psyched for Spider-Man Far From Home, no matter what? Speaking of psyched, I think one of the craziest and best shows of last year was Happy from sci-fi, right? It was just so phenomenal, and, you know, Christopher Maloney's performance as Nick Sachs, and... The story was just next-level nuts. Whether you read the comic or not, yeah, I'm sure you enjoyed it. It's going to be coming back on March the 27th, and we got ourselves a fresh new trailer. And it looks like Nick Sachs' is going to be giving up all his vices. You know, no more drinking, no more killing, no more whoring around. Yep, it's time to start a new life with his daughter and, you know, kind of be dad. But, you know, happy still in the picture and helping him out. That is until, when you see the trailer... And you see Smoothie again, and it looks like Nick has a change of heart. He's like, you know what? Yeah, we're going to go after Sunny Shine and take this whole thing down. I mean, it also looks like this will be based around Easter, sort of sticking around the holiday theme. It was Christmas last time. This time it's going to be Easter. And then that's when we just see a montage of all these crazy characters, and there's horns, and there's like a... Somebody humping a giant blood drop costume. It was really, really bizarre. I mean, there's, you get to see, you know, more of Paul White that I'm sure you ever wanted to see. The big show there on the toilet. That's, that's interesting. And, but then one thing that you see that you're kind of hoping, that you're kind of glad you're seeing, you see Nick throw on the rags, chug the vodka, and he's back to his old ways. I mean, there's certain things that you just know aren't going to last, right? And that's Nick Sachs on the straight and narrow. So, I mean, it's just good to know that Happy is going to be the, you know, balls to the walls. You know, there's absolutely no care for convention for conventional stuff here. It's just going to be the off-the-wall crazy show that made me love it in season one and just be so unpredictable from week to week. Again, whether you're a fan of the comic or not or whether you've read it or not. This is one that it's appointment viewing for me anyway. It's really going to be appointment viewing for me in season two as well. I can't wait for this. And here's something: I think John Wick has been one of these surprise hits since it absolutely since it started. I mean, it just sort of came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden now here we are with John Wick Chapter Three Parabellum with the trailer coming out this past week as well. Now, based the basis of this is is that John is kind of burned and he's dodging. A 14 million dollar bounty on his head and no one seems to want to help him and I guess you know that's the fruit of the poisonous tree right you help him and suddenly your head's on the chopping block as well so uh, there's just so much action in this trailer and that's you've come to expect that from John Wick movies right I mean it's like this it's like this generation's version of the Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal movies but taken up an absolutely insane notch with a really good continuing story behind it, but it's the action that you're really coming for. It's like the Fast and the Furious. I mean, yeah, you're okay with the story, you and you might be into the story, but what you're there for is the cool action, and that's exactly what John Wick is bringing you here. in Keanu Reeves. I mean, you pretty, I pretty much, I'm pretty sure he just kills someone with a library book, and and libraries really aren't the place to be in movies anymore. Aren't they? It seems like there's always epic battles now in libraries and stuff. Correct me if I'm wrong there. We also see him being chased by like a gang of motorcycle-wielding katana guys. It's, it. I mean, that's insane. How do you even, how do you even combat that? But he does. And then we finally meet Sophia as well, who's played by Halle Berry. And it looks like you know, she's just as badass as he is. And they just kind of pick things up where they left off. And now John finally has that help that he was looking for. It's just an absolute, nonstop, Action ride that how could you not want to be on board for this, as far as I'm concerned? So, I'm going to actually go back and watch the first two John Wick movies before this one comes out this summer because I want to be up to date and I just can't wait for this. But speaking of things that are going to be coming out in the summer, and this one really came out of nowhere, didn't it? Entertainment Weekly gives us the story that Ghostbusters is back, and there were hints of another Ghostbusters movie coming, but not like this. It will be restoring the original universe. It will release in the summer of 2020. I mean, you want to talk about being fast-tracked. There are movies that have been announced recently that aren't even coming out until like 2022 and stuff like that. No, no, no. Ghostbusters is going to be coming out, Ghostbusters 3, in summer of 2020. And Jason Reitman is actually going to direct. You might remember that name because his dad, Ivan directed the original i mean but jason's got a really good resume with up in the air and juno and some other stuff that he's done recently there's even a teaser for this already which i thought was completely bonkers i mean it's just really quick it's an old barn in the middle of nowhere and you see ecto wands under a tarp it's creepy you sort of hear the proton proton packs fire up so you know something's happening I mean, there's very various reports that have come out now. This is going to be a a, a teen cast. They have seen that a couple places, and I would I absolutely doesn't surprise me if they go younger. There's really no word on you know if any of the original cast members are going to be involved. At first, I thought, how is this movie coming out in 2020? How, why would you want to rush this? What is the point of doing this so quickly? And then I looked at, I was list, I was looking at the interview. That Reitman was giving to Entertainment Weekly where he's talking about being on the set of the original Ghostbusters when he was six and just being immersed in it. And I thought, you know what? That's how he can do this. That's how they can do this so quickly. I mean, he lived this franchise. If you were just if you were to hand pick someone to work on something that you love and bring it back to glory, wouldn't you want it to be someone who literally lived it, not just was a fan of it, absolutely lived it from his childhood. This was right in front of him. This is something that's truly near and dear to his heart. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't other directors and aren't other people that that don't also love Ghostbusters and would want to do this justice. This is basically his family legacy. You don't mess with that, right? You do not want to get that wrong. So he's going to pour everything that he has into this. And that is why I am looking forward to this more than anything else and why I have a lot of hope for this. And I'm psyched that we're going to be able to see it sooner rather than later. As if we didn't talk enough about Mortal Kombat last week, and I have to do it once again this week because we had the the stream revealed from Mortal Kombat 11, and the big, of course, highlight that seems to be coming from that is the fact that Ronda Rousey is going to be the voice of Sonya Blade. I mean, there's a ton of great voice actresses out there that, that I think could have deserved this just as much. I'm not, re- not going to get on my high horse about that. You know how I feel about great voice talent and the fact that they deserve work, but you know, Ronda Rousey certainly gives you headlines, and she's a fan. And I, and certainly, you know, obviously, she goes for this part; she wants it, and she got it. So, I'm sure she'll do a fantastic job. And you know, she's a again, she's a fan, so I'm sure that she's going to want to do the character justice. Another big thing that we found out was that we've got the beta coming, and that if you pre-order, if you pre-order the game, Shao Kahn is going to be playable, which looks like it's going to be really, really awesome. But to me, the biggest news. So we're getting the first female boss that's going to be introduced to Mortal Kombat ever. There's been some great female characters, no female bosses, but now we have Kronika, who is billed as the keeper of time and the creator of existence. Nothing more ominous than that, I would say. Now, we also have another new character, though, Garrus, who is her loyal servant and can also manipulate time as well. So it looks like we are getting at least one new character, but you know, you're looking at the characters that you know and love, right? Like you're seeing Scorpion and Raiden and Baraka. You get a, get a shot of Liu Kang for a few minutes there. You're seeing the the gameplay trailer was just next level insane. I mean, it really looks like they've taken an up a notch once again, especially with the fatalities. Everything is just so intense. Speaking of our fatalities, though, not only is Scarlet back in Mortal Kombat, but did you see... Some of her fatalities. I mean, most eye-catching of the bunch as far as I'm concerned. Pun absolutely intended there, by the way. Just in case you actually saw the gameplay trailer. I mean, I'm not saying that some of Sub-Zero's stuff wasn't cool. I'm not saying Scorpio. Baraka, having Baraka back and seeing all the stuff that he can do was really, really neat. But Scarlet is the one that stood out to me and that that I remembered the most. And of course you're going to have the looks like the story modes going to involve a lot of time travel and time bending and stuff like that. So that will certainly keep us on our toes and make things really really interesting. And that's one thing that you need to do when you're coming off of Mortal Kombat 10 and it, you know the hype was just so huge around that at the time and it's like how do you top this? Well, you do something like this with Mortal Kombat 11 and it might just succeed in doing that. We'll find out though when the game comes out on April the 23rd. that's going to do for nerd news up next? Time to check in to the deadly class. And Taylor Hickson going to be talking about Petra with us next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Patrick Fischler from Happy on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You heard us talk about it when we were at San Diego Comic Con this past year, but we're going to talk about it again because we love it. It's Deadly Class on Sci-Fi, which of course you can watch every yeah. Wednesday at 10 o'clock Eastern. We have Petra with us this week. It's Taylor Hicks and Taylor. How you doing?
2: I'm awesome. How are you,
0: James? I'm doing great. Now you've already gotten to bring quite a variety of characters to life on the screen already in your young career. What's a, what's the most unique thing to you about Petra?
2: Definitely, her uh, flatness, her monotonous tone of voice—that was a very fun thing to design with our pilot director and with Rick. We we brought in some elements from Daria, which is a '90s cartoon character. Nice, and, uh, he, nice. He had me go home <laughs> watch that. So <laughs> that's that was it. during our first week of discovering this character. That was what we came upon.
0: That sound, that's so Rick, too. What was it like working with him on this?
2: Oh, I think he's clinically insane. He just doesn't <laughs> sleep. He doesn't breathe this show. He's one of the most incredible creatives I've ever met in my life. And as a showrunner, he's a breath of fresh air. He's nothing Hollywood tacked to him. He's just, his, his approaches are so special. He's just so special. And I can't say enough about him. And just such an infectious energy to be around.
0: No doubt about that. As a matter of fact, speaking of, you know, Breath of Fresh Air, the show's obviously already aired on Sci-Fi. the pilot has, but it's also it was also released online early. <laughs> it was even released on social media. Being a part of the show, how cool was it for you to kind of get some early feedback from some diehard fans who just couldn't
2: wait? I mean, it was amazing. We, we were both nervous and excited to see what it was going to be. I mean, when you're bringing ink to screen, it's, it's always a very tricky, sensitive thing that you're working with. And we want to make sure we get that right. And we're also bringing elements of Rick's life and his experiences to screen. So, you know, we wanted to make sure we nailed that. And um, we did stay very, very true to the comics for the pilot. But uh, you'll definitely see some twists and turns that weren't exactly written coming up for the season.
0: So do you kind of feel like you did have a little bit of free reign? Because I know how diehard Deadly Class fans are, and it's such a great story. Did you still feel like you could kind of stretch your wings a little bit with Petra?
2: We had so much creative freedom and we you know rick gave us the opportunity so much of its improv you you wouldn't believe how much of it's really and i think um liam james billy yeah he has a lot of improv he had a lot of fun with his character he's absolutely incredible watching him you know go from the way way back and the killing to something like this he's he's just he blows my mind away he's one of my greatest friends i've made on that show but he's So talented, but yeah, all the improv and stuff we and things we got to play with. It's incredible to have that kind of
0: freedom. Now Taylor, the story itself is actually based in the 80s, which of course you kind of missed because you were born in 1997. So how cool is it as an actress (laughs) to actually be able to explore decades like that from before you were even born? And is there a part of 80s culture that you actually really enjoy?
2: I mean, if you look at my own personal wardrobe, you can see I'm nostalgic for an era that I never lived in. (laughs) But a major (laughs) aim for our show was the the authentic the 80s the late 80s counterculture rick was so adamant about avoiding tackiness or you know avoiding trying to be too try hard with the 80s we didn't want to come off costumey, so we we worked really hard on staying honest and the soundtrack is a great portrayal of that um it's the soundtrack's phenomenal he he had us do a lot of research he told us endless stories we got books and you know punk books for us for the rats to look through um all photos from the 80s and um, we got playlists sent to us like every other week to listen to you know a couple of us went to punk shows and we were taught how to go in a a mosh
0: pit (laughs) wow wow Um,
2: it was was incredible
0: i'm surprised he didn't Um, send you guys mixtapes and cassette decks
2: We actually
0: did get some from NBC. (laughs) Oh, there it is. Yep, there we go. There it is, yeah. Now, speaking of the school itself, King's Dominion, we know it has a lot of cliques, but we see that Petra's kind of considered one of the outcasts along with Billy and Marcus early on here. So do you think not being a part of one of those cliques actually adds more intrigue to her character than if she were part of one? And would you say that there's already a bond between her and her fellow rats? 100%. I think
2: there's a very special bond between her and Billy um, you'll come to see. <laughs> but yeah, she's she's very broody, um, very opinionated, very sarcastic, but I, I think it's all a, a cover-up because she's scared to feel compassion, but she just wants a place to belong, and oddly enough, in this that find that within each other is very ironic, but I think she feels safe around them, and, and she doesn't care to admit that, and I think it does create problems for her that she she won't she won't let people care for her as deeply as she wants them to. So there's a lot of a lot of there with this character. But, um, yeah, you'll we'll have to tune in to find out.
0: Actually, one of the things that we saw in the first episode is clearly not everyone at King's Dominion is as they seem. And we, we certainly saw that with Willie. So would you kind of say in a certain sense that that's true of Petra as well?
2: Petra will do what it takes to feel safe. And whether that's hurting someone she loves or she just wants a place to belong and she will go to the bitter end to, to fight for that. A lot of get hurt in this comic and there's a lot of heartbreaking moments, but um, she will um, endure what it, what it takes to keep herself alive and to feel like she belongs.
0: Talking to Taylor Hickson of Deadly Class. Of course, she plays Petra. You can watch the show every Wednesday night at 10 o'clock Eastern on Sci Fi. Now, Taylor, let's talk about that for a minute because there's a lot of really tragic backstories with a lot of these characters on the show, and Petra's certainly no different now. Will we actually get a chance to explore that a little bit more at some point?
2: There's a lot of tragedy that occurs, and I think, <laughs> I think people are going to be very heartbroken with the betrayal and revenge that happens amongst a lot of. The characters that are very close and that the audience falls in love with. But she does hurt people that are close to her. <laughs> if, you, if you've ever read the comics, you'll see that's true. But um, she does just want a place to belong and um, feel loved.
0: Now, I've seen you already have a little bit of fun with this on social media. Some students at King's Dominion have their specialties and Petra's just happens to be, she happens to be at the top of her class in poisons. Now, Taylor, I'm going to go on a limb here and say that you don't kind of spend your free time, you know, mixing poisons uh, uh, where you are. So I'll ask you this: What's the best thing that you've ever made from scratch?
2: <laughs> um, I can't bake worth anything. I burn everything. My friend and my to be cute and like let's bake apple pie, and then it's burnt to shit. <laughs> like, maybe a candle or something, or like a pillow and Girl Guides.
0: That counts. Just
2: because it was created out of, not because it was fluffy at all.
0: That counts. I, I mean, can't it's, make anything. As so. long as you can rest your head on it, then the pillow works. Uh, that I'll take that. That counts.
2: Yeah. Maybe a song. <laughs>
0: <I'll laughs> oh, even better though. Yeah. <laughs> so Rick, I have sure. this song. I was wondering if you'd like to consider it for the show. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's like bedroom pop. He's like, ah. Oh, nice a good
0: time. <laughs> nice. Now, some Deadly Class fans might actually know this about you, Taylor, but you actually got a part in the first Deadpool movie, and you were part of that as well. So how do you think Deadpool would have fit in at King's Dominion, and do you think he would have made a good instructor?
2: Oh, oh my God, yes. Oh my God. You know, one of the, it's funny, one of the, um, our instructors actually does remind me of Deadpool, and you'll, I think you'll see (laughs) who it is, but he's very playful and and wry and... (laughs) Very dry humor, but also incredibly dangerous. So actually one of the one of our instructors did quite remind me of this
0: one. That's <laughs> very, very interesting. You talked about actually watching Daria earlier to kind of get the tone of how Petra is, but let's talk about the look for a second because this, I mean, if you look at some of your other roles, this is a very, very different look for you. So how was that?
2: It was incredible. I, I was wigged every day. Susie Sue was definitely a poster girl for what we were going for. She's actually one of the only girls that wears a pantsuit. All of the other girls are in skirts or dresses. So that was very fun because I hate skirts and dresses. And being in one of those for over six months would have killed me. So I got to wear these really fun high-waisted pants and um, suit and tie, which a lot of the other girls didn't, didn't get.
0: Do you feel like that kind of also shows how you can break the mold in a decade like the 80s? I know that there's a lot of talk about, about you know, sort of breaking the female stereotype in today's world, but do you feel like Petra was yes. doing that in that decade, like 30 years ago?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, this show, our, we, we want to convey to people that we're fighting out of roles assigned by the old patriarchy, and, and these kids are rebelling against Traditions and, and the vision that the old patriarchy has, right? So that's that's a major message of our show, and I think Petra's is a poster girl for that sort of thing. She she wants nothing nothing to do with anything mainstream. She will shit on anything mainstream, especially John Hughes,
0: <laughs> which is awesome. Now, before I let you go, Taylor, we know that there's so many great characters and obviously a great ensemble cast on the show. That being said is there another character on the show that you kind of hope to see Petra clash with at some point?
2: I would like to see her behead Brandy.
0: <laughs> wow! She throws <laughs> I, it I guess, out there!
2: I'm in love with Siobhan in real life, and I think we have very playful banter, but that is definitely a head-to-head thing um, that goes on a so well. I mean, I mean, Petra doesn't get on well with most people. She always has an attitude, even with Sia Maria. I don't think she ever... Has a, a female companion that she trusts in. It's and she always feels more comfortable with the males at the show. Um, that's just where she feels she fits in. She doesn't feel like she's being judged as much for who she is and what she wears, because men tend to care less about that. And um, you know, it, it wasn't an era where men wore eyeliner and and more more femme things, which I would love love to bring back. Um, it's it's one of my favorite parts of the '80s. I just, I feel like everyone's so sensitized to that now, but I think I think we're starting and we're starting to see a bit more acceptance of that, which is was super cool to bring into the elements of our show. But definitely, I think she she fits in with the boys a bit more, and I I can definitely relate to that growing up. Girls are catty; <laughs> they have a lot of un unneeded drama, <laughs> definitely in high school.
0: That certainly plays out in this show as well. If anybody's read the comic, you know that.
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) but we can't wait to see how it all plays out on the screen because you can watch deadly class every wednesday on sci-fi at 10 p.m you can also watch it again and again and again on the sci-fi app and sci-fi.com it's taylor hickson thanks for bringing a little petra to the show this week
2: (laughs) you got it thank you so much
0: when i watched deadly class the first time one of the characters that really did stand out to me was Petra. I mean, it's easy to focus on Maria or focus on Saya, or focus on Marcus. I mean, but for some reason, Billy and Petra being fellow rats, I mean, just for some reason, they just really stood out. And I'm glad I got to talk to Taylor Hickson about that. And it seems like she loves the character, just as much as fans do, and I know that she's been getting a really good response from fans on social media who love the way she portrays Petra, so hopefully we see a ton more of that. and I can't wait to see, by the way, if some of the stuff with Petra in the comics pans out exactly the way it does, because if you're a fan of the comics, you know there's certain stuff there that might surprise some fans that aren't. I'm not going to spoil it, because she didn't, so all I could say is keep watching Deadly Class, Every Wednesday on Sci Fi at 10 o'clock Eastern. And you can also get the uncensored version, by the way, at the Sci Fi app and at sci fi.com if you prefer to watch that way. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Taylor Hickson and Liz Heldens from The Passage for joining me this week. You want more of our interviews, all kinds of reviews and articles, go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. You can also find us on social media at downandnerdy757 on Instagram and Twitter, and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Always remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.